Somehow it's already December 18th. I don't know how that happened. But I say that almost every year, right? I'm, I'm going through life and I'm sort of, you know, I'm, I'm focused on things in the church and, and doing all this stuff. And then one morning I wake up and Christmas is a week away. And um, I barely started shopping. So uh, fortunately, I have a wonderful wife who's incredibly gracious uh, and loves me and loves the church. So that's good news. I hope for all of you guys in the midst of the, the last, uh, you know, mad rush to get everything ready for Christmas this year that... Your hearts are now beginning to focus in on the true purpose that lies behind this, this moment that we celebrate every year on December 25th. And not that that's the actual historical date of Jesus' birth or that really that it's more important than any other Sunday on the calendar. The purpose of setting aside this season in our hearts is to just wonder about the incarnation. To just be in awe of the story of what God has done for us. That Yahweh, the creator God of the universe, would break into human history and make himself known to sinners like us in a very physical, tactile way. There really is no other story quite like it, and it has massive implications for us and our future. So this morning, we're wrapping up our four-part Advent series. You can see we have four candles lit. Did you notice? Well done. Good. Um, and I hope it's been helpful for you to see the big picture of, of, of what God was up to when he purposed long ago, before the foundations of the world, that he would come and take on flesh and pay the ransom for our sins. So just as a recap, you might remember, there we go, that in week one, we talked about the fact that God is revealing himself to us. And that is really a foundational truth. Without that, we couldn't know God, right, in a personal way. So that was week one. Week two was we looked at how God is coming to redeem a people for himself, how he's always been doing that, right? From the beginning, he's been sovereignly active in that work of redeeming a people. And then last Sunday, we looked at sort of the, the heavier side of Christmas, that your king is coming to judge. He's coming to judge the world. And we, we talked about how that's something that is hard to talk about, but we can't just ignore it. Because if God is good, and if he is just, then he has to punish sin. He has to see it and judge it for what it is. Today we come to what I would call the crowning glory of the incarnation story. Your king is coming to rule the world. Wow. To rule the earth. And this, friends, really is our great hope and joy. And I think it's so fitting here on this last Sunday that we're gathering. The last Sunday we're gathering at Master's. Right? And before Christmas comes that we look to the glory of all that God has for us in the future at the end of days. So we're going to do more biblical theology today. I know it's been four heavy weeks of lots of biblical theology where we step back and we sort of rise above the Bible story and we look at it from 40,000 feet and try to see what God has been doing since the beginning. Now, uh, a quick warning to you guys, we're going to look at a ton of Old Testament prophecy today. So I hope you had a couple cups of coffee. Uh, did you get a pastry out front? Special pastries today good coffee, you're going to need it, okay? So are we buckled in? Yeah. Are we? Good. Alex Windsor, very good. Good. All right. First of all, did you hear Grant read the lyrics of Joy to the World? Really interesting, right? As he shared, this world-famous Christmas carol that we all love and we love to belt out at Christmas time was not written for Christmas at all. Not at all. So let's look at just some of the phrases from the song and think about it. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Have we done that? Has the earth received Jesus as king? That didn't work so well the first time, did it? What about joy to the world, the Savior reigns? Does Jesus reign today? And if so, how? 
These are questions we need to know as believers. Here's a, here's a great one. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Has that happened yet? Is, is all of our sin and sorrow overcome? Are there still thorns in our front yards and in our fields today? And then lastly, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations, that would be the Gentile nations, prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. So is Jesus ruling the world today? Have the nations declared the glories of his righteousness? Can you see how those lyrics weren't really focused on the first advent of Christ, but they're focused on the second coming of Christ and this future kingdom that he is going to establish. So this is really a great song, not just a great song to sing because it's a great Christmas carol, but because it fits so well with what we're talking about this morning. So let's not dig into this. We're gonna start with some really important definitions so that we can see how is it that God is coming, your king is coming to actually rule the earth. When you talk about somebody ruling something, it means that they're ruling over something, right? You can't rule just uh, in a vacuum. You have to be ruling over something. So today we're talking about something very obvious, that we're talking about God's kingdom, right? When we open up the Bible, we see these phrases, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. That's what we're talking about when we say rule. Believe it or not, the kingdom of God is not a simple concept. In fact, if you've done any study of all of biblical theology, you'll find that's one of the most hotly debated subjects in all of theology. And you can read books and books and articles and articles about it. I'm going to try to simplify it for us this morning in about 45 minutes. I promise. So, so in simplifying it, here's, here's the way I like to explain it. There are three aspects of God's kingdom that I see reflected in the pages of Scripture. And it's important whenever you see the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven that you understand, as you see that on the page, you understand the aspect that's being, that's being communicated within that context. So let me try to walk you through this. The first, the first aspect of God's kingdom is the most obvious. The kingdom of God is the rule of an eternal sovereign God over every inch of what he's created, the entire universe, every molecule of creation, right? Every bit of matter, every person, every plant, every animal, every event, and so on, all of it. Completely sovereign, right? In fact, Psalm 103.19 says it really well. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. And all means what? All. Can I get an amen? Good. So we see immediately in scripture from Genesis 1.1 forward, God is establishing his reign as he decrees all things and he creates all things and as he establishes his commands, even as he holds that first couple responsible and accountable for their sin. So in this first aspect of God's kingdom, God is sovereign over everything and every single human being and every nation on earth is a part of this kingdom, whether they want to know God or not. That's really important to understand. This, this aspect of God's kingdom cannot be avoided. It cannot be escaped. You cannot wake up as, a, as an individual and say, I hereby declare to be outside of God's sovereign rule. No nation can do that either. God is sovereign over all of it. Make sense? Okay, so that's the first aspect. Here's the second. It's a spiritual rule under which there is salvation and the promise of eternal life. So there's the big picture, sovereign overall, and then there's the spiritual rule under which salvation and the promise of eternal life come. This is what Jesus was talking about in John 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus. Remember what he said? Unless one is born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. 
Okay, so that's very different than the first aspect, right? He says, you, without being born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So this is spiritual, not physical. It comes through this new birth. It comes by faith in Christ alone. And therefore, it's made up of only a portion or a subset of the people that are in the larger kingdom of the universe. Make sense? It's a portion or a subset, right? So in this second aspect, there are some people who are part of this aspect of God's kingdom and many more who are not are not included. And in this sense, we can say that the kingdom of God comes to those whom God has revealed himself to, who are chosen by God. And that's different than the first aspect, the sovereignty sense. In that aspect, the kingdom doesn't come, it just is, right? It's an unavoidable fact that that kingdom in the, in the larger sense just is. It doesn't come, but this one comes. This one comes to those whom God has chosen. So question, was God the son the second person of the Trinity reigning over the world before he took on flesh, before he lived among us as Jesus of Nazareth. Was he reigning? The answer is yes, he was. In that sovereign sense, he was. We read in John 1 that he is God, right? That in the beginning he existed, meaning he has an eternal nature. And we read that he was with the Father prior to creation. And not only that, all things were made through him. Then we read over to, we turn over to Hebrews 1, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, and it says that he upholds or sustains all things in the universe. Even the very next breath that you take, he sustains it by the word of his power. So yes, we acknowledge that Christ has, first of all, always reigned over the world in the sense of God's sovereign rule. Secondly, he is the object of faith and the door to salvation that brings a person into that second aspect of the kingdom, into the spiritual kingdom, which is at the heart of that, right? He is the object of faith and he is the door to salvation. So here's what this means for us. If you're sitting here this morning and you're a believer, you are a, a Christian, you are found in Christ, meaning you've trusted in him by faith alone and not in your own works, you're a part of both of these aspects of, the, of God's kingdom. That's, that's amazing, right? You are a part of both of those aspects. You were born into the first one, into the sovereign aspect of his kingdom, and you were born again into the spiritual kingdom of God's son. So we can praise God for that. Now, the third aspect of the kingdom of God, but everybody understand that? It's pretty straightforward. The third aspect gets really, really complex. And this is where most of the controversy is. The third aspect of God's kingdom is an earthly theocratic kingdom. It is an earthly theocratic kingdom. It's located where? down here on earth, where God works through his chosen people. This too is referred to as the kingdom. And this is where we're gonna bump into this motif we've talked about multiple times, what we call already, not yet. It's already established, but not in its fullness. And you'll see that as we walk through this. As soon as God established a particular people and a particular nation for himself, you had the beginnings of a temporal earthly kingdom. You begin to see Yahweh choosing certain servants who will function as his, I don't even know if this is a word, under-reigners, is that a word? Under-reigners? Yeah, I'm getting a shrug from the guys in the front, the elders, that's good. Um, but men through whom God reigned as king over his people. Today we talk in the church about under-shepherds, right? The, under the great shepherd. Under-reigners, God is choosing certain men. And this concept is all over scripture. If you do a word search at any Bible software you have, you will find, get this, 2,600 references to the word king. Wow. 
136 reference to rulers and another 211 to the concept of a reign. So this is a big theme in scripture. And because, you know, from a theological perspective, we can figure out why that's true because the Bible says that God is a God of peace and not disorder. That means he likes order in his creation, right? He's ordered it by design. God has also ordered human societies, even governments, for the purpose of stability. We see how he's given his people Israel and now the church, both order and structure, so that authority can be, uh, can be delegated to the people that God raises up and chooses for those offices. So God is a God of order. And there's a long history of kingship in the Bible. We could do a whole preaching series. Maybe someday we'll go through the book of Kings or Chronicles. And I could bore you with maps and history all day long, but we'll keep it short for today. Here's what we know about the kingship of Israel. Right around the year 1050 BC, at a time when the Philistines, who are the, the neighbors of Israel to the west, began to grow in power, God's people began to cry out for a visible, physical king. They wanted somebody. So we want to be like all the other nations, they said, because all those other nations have these, these glorious kings who lead them into battle, and we want to be like... These pagan nations. It was a not-so-subtle jab at Yahweh, wasn't it? Like, you're invisible, we're not real pleased with you, give us a physical king. We don't trust you is basically what they were saying, so give us somebody that we can see, somebody that we can admire, we can be proud of, a physical king. And so what did God do? He conceded. And he handed them over to their foolishness, right? And he gave them King, king Saul, right? Who was an object lesson of failure for the people of Israel. But in spite of that, God could have been offended and turned away from his people, but he has a long-suffering nature, and of course, he has his sovereign purposes always in mind. In spite of that, Yahweh crafted something beautiful out of Israel's rejection, something beautiful. He appointed David as his king. David, his king over his people. A man after his own heart, he said. And not only that, the appointment of David had a much more far-reaching purpose to it. It wasn't just the life of this one man, but through David, he laid down what we call the Davidic covenant. And that, the fulfillment of that covenant, becomes the big story that runs through the rest of the Old Testament, takes us through the kings and the chronicles of, of, of the, the various rulers in Israel and Judah, and takes us right up into the New Testament and to the first advent of Christ. Now, it's at that moment... When, when God sends forth his son, right? In the fullness of the times, Paul says, God sent forth his son. That's when the aspects two and three of the kingdom collided with each other. It's very interesting to think about. God the son stepped out of eternity, stepped out of the heavenly realms, and he came to earth in the form of a baby, right? Born of a woman, Paul says, born under the law, meaning born as a Jew, and the kingdom of God came with him, at least in part, Right? Does it surprise us when we, when we say that out loud? The kingdom of God came at least in part with Jesus. We looked at last week, John the Baptist. What did he say? He came to pave the way for the Messiah. And he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, it's on its way. Like it or not, it's coming. So be prepared. At that moment, the kingdom was truly about to break into human history in a very dramatic way. Now here's the complication with that story. God the Son did arrive and he was rejected. So we have this collision of these two aspects of the kingdom, right? Spiritual one in the heavenly places and this earthly theocratic one, and they run into each other. God the Son comes, and he's rejected. He came to his own, and they did not receive him, John says. Hmm. So regardless of who he truly is, Jesus was never crowned as a king while on earth. 
fact, the opposite was done, right? He was, he was arrested and executed by the wicked men who were in charge of Israel at the time. So what does that mean for God's kingdom on earth? This earthly theocratic kingdom, what does that mean? Well, the reign of Christ and the kingdom of heaven took on a whole new dimension when after the crucifixion, Jesus was resurrected from the dead and ascended to the right hand of power, back to where he was. It says, we'll look at it soon in John 17, back to the glory that he had with the Father before the world was made. He went right back up there and he was given a name above every other name, right? When he ascended to the right hand of power that at his name, every knee will bow. So lots of, lots of interesting, almost confusing messages happening between the spiritual kingdom and this earthly kingdom. From that point forward, the locus of God's kingdom on earth was now found not in Israel as a nation, not in Israel as an ethnic people, but in the church, made up of both Jew and Gentile. That's currently the locus of God's kingdom on the earth, but it's only in part. See, the kingdom of God is already, and if you're found in Christ this morning, you're a part of that kingdom in the sovereign sense, and if you're born again, you're part of the spiritual sense, and you're also part of the earthly sense because you're part of the church, but we haven't seen the fullness of this yet. This is the not yet, okay? So we're just setting the scene for a whole bunch of scripture, so hang with me. Here's the thing. In regard to that earthly sense, there is still so much more for us to look forward to. It's in the not yet. Here's the thing. Right now, the reign of Christ is happening, right? Christ is reigning from heaven, but down here on earth, it's being contested. It's being challenged. Have you noticed this? It's being challenged. For a time, God himself has granted a measure of rule and authority and power to Satan and to wicked mankind and even to death because death continues to be an enemy, right, that takes us. Now, as I say that, don't be confused up in heaven in the eternal sense. God's kingdom remains sovereign in every way. There's no question about that. His will is being done without contest up in the heavenly realms. But there is this temporary situation on earth where there is a contested battle taking place. In fact, I can prove that just by telling you when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he said this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus literally told his apostles to pray that. In other words, as much as possible, let the state of the kingdom down here match the state of the kingdom that's taking place perfectly up in heaven. That's a really good prayer. It's what we long for, right? That things down in here on earth would, would, would get closer and closer and be more and more conformed to what's happening with God's perfect will in the heavens. And while Jesus was on the earth, we got a little taste of it. We read about it in the Gospels. We got a little foreshadowing of what this ultimate kingdom is going to look like. Because as Jesus walked the earth, the blind were given sight, right? And the deaf were made to hear, and physical disabilities were cured, and diseases were healed. Dead people were even brought back to life when Jesus walked the earth. So we can say that the kingdom dawned with the first advent of Christ, but again, there's so much more. It's just a little foretaste of what's to come in the future kingdom. So we pray, your kingdom come. Meaning, O oh Lord, come in all of the fullness, bring the kingdom that you have promised in your word. We want to experience that. That should be the longing of our heart, especially at Christmas time. When we think about the first coming of Christ, we should always, as we explained in the first week of the series, always think about the second as well. Make sense? Now, what's that going to look like? What is this kingdom going to look like? Well, this is where it gets really exciting for us. It gets a little bit technical. 
So you're going to have to hang with me, but it's very exciting because right now in the church today, get this, we're in the preparation phase for what's to come. You may not think of it that way. You may think, oh, I'm still young. I've got all these things I want to do in my life and all that stuff. I'm telling you right now, you are in the preparation phase for a much greater aspect of, of, of life when the kingdom comes. So this is where one of the great theological debates of our time is being waged. And um, I don't want to get too technical on this. If you have questions about this, I would love to have a sort of a private chat. We can get coffee. Coffee's always good. We can talk more. But the question is this, will there be a full, uncontested, literal, physical form of God's kingdom located on the earth at the end of days? Is that coming? And this is the debate, and I'll put the words on the screen. There it is. This is the debate between what we call premillennial position, which we are at Oak Hill, meaning we believe there is a literal future earthly kingdom, and folks who are amillennial, who don't believe that at all. And as I talk about this today, I've said it before, there are many of my great spiritual heroes who are all millennial. I've, I've read their arguments. I don't agree, but I respect it. And so we're not attacking people over essentials here. We're just, we just have different eschatological views on things. But this is a huge tension right now in the church. I'm absolutely convinced by scripture that there will be an earthly millennial kingdom when Christ returns. I believe our king is coming to rule the earth. And we will be a part of it. That's what's the most exciting about We will be a part of it. Now, just to be clear, what do I mean when I use that term millennial kingdom? Well, I'm talking about Jesus, no longer that humble lamb, but the roaring lion that we sing about, coming back in his, all of his glory, his blazing glory, to judge his enemies, to make war against them, to defeat them, and then to establish himself as the Davidic king on the throne in literal Jerusalem for a thousand years and ruling over the entire earth. That's what I believe the Bible teaches. And we'll look at a whole bunch of passages about that. This a thousand years, this millennial period, is what comes prior to the summing up of all things in Christ. Because there is coming a time when death will eventually be destroyed and abolished, and, and the, the final judgment will take place, and God will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. We call that the eternal state. But prior to that, I'm convinced by Scripture there will be this millennial kingdom. Now, what confuses people often when you talk about the end of days or the millennial kingdom is where do you find this? And where does our mind always go to when we think about the last days? Always to the book of Revelation. And you will find the millennial kingdom there in chapter 20. It's clearly laid out there, but it's an accurate statement to say that actually the book of Revelation is far more about the tribulation period than it is about the millennial kingdom. So if you want to know about the stresses of the Great Tribulation, Revelation's going to give you all that. But if you want to look at what the Millennial Kingdom will be like, where do you go? The Old Testament prophets. That's where you're going to find it. The second coming of Christ in his Millennial Kingdom is best found in the Old Testament among the prophets. And it's, it's that, those texts, honestly, when I've argued with this with all millennials, I will say, look, because they want to ignore what it says in Revelation 20. I don't want to, of course, because it's there. But I'm more than happy to say, well, let's talk about the Old Testament prophets. And that's where things get sticky. I'm convinced that if we don't have a millennial kingdom, then God isn't true to his word. And I know he's true to his word. 
And we're going to look at that today. Now, David plays a huge role in this. That's why I pointed him out earlier. David is a huge key. The promises that God has made to establish an eternal Davidic covenant or or kingdom is critical to this debate. And much of that data comes from the major prophets. We'll start in Isaiah. For example, what's the most famous verse at Christmas time that comes out of Isaiah? It's chapter 9. It's a very familiar passage. But just like Joy to the World, we often read it with a Christmas you know, lens, but we don't hear it with an eschatological ear. So let's look at this here. For a child will be born to us. We know this, right? A son will be given to us. And, and we get that right off the bat. It's on every Christmas card, right? That is, uh, you know, the birth of a unique child, a son born of a virgin. But now listen, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Have you ever stopped and said, well, wait, what government? When did that happen? What's going on there? Well, let's keep, let's keep going. And not only will the government be on his shoulders, his name will be called, look at these titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Has there ever been a government leader in the past who's been called by those names? I doubt it. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. No end to his rule or his dominion. So whoever this ruler is, Right? It's very mysterious because it goes on forever. How is that possible? On the throne of who? Of David and over David's kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Forevermore. So this passage has to refer to an earthly government. You cannot spiritualize this away into some type of heavenly reign. The king of Isaiah 9 is going to sit on the throne of David. And guys, this is so important to understand. Nowhere in scripture is David's throne ever said to be up in the heavens. David's throne is only in one location in Jerusalem on the earth. There's no other reference to it. So this has to be uh, an earthly throne we're talking about. Who has a throne in heaven? Only God. David doesn't get a, David doesn't have a special throne in heaven, right? It's, it's God's throne in heaven. So this has to be a reference to a future earthly reign. And we know there's never been an earthly kingdom like this one, right? One that's filled with justice and righteousness. How do we feel about government these days? <laughs> do we see any justice or righteousness on the earth? Or a king who we look at him and a ruler and we say, oh, he's like mighty God. Yeah, no, that's not happening either. Right? And a kingdom that has no end. What else could this be? Your king is coming to rule on the earth, you guys. Then there's this extensive passage from Isaiah chapter 11. And just like the one we just saw, it has multiple layers of fulfillment. It's got a fulfillment in the near future and then a fulfillment in the far-reaching future. Let's see if we got this. Isaiah 11. It says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. And as you read that, you can make a good case. That's a description of the first advent of Christ, right? He is a, a, according to the flesh, a stem from Jesse, right? Jesse being David's father. So we see that according to the flesh. He's a branch from the stem of Jesse. And in all of, his, all of his days, we've been reading this in John, right? He always, always, always walked in the fear of the Lord, right? In the fear of his father. But here's where the prophecy shifts now. Look what it says. 
But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. What? And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. These are things Jesus did not do in his first advent, right? And then listen to what comes next. And the, oh, oh, I don't have it. I'm going to read it to you. And the wolf, get this, will dwell with the lamb. Oh, and the leopard will lie down with the kid. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. So there's something about this future era that's being talked about here that's going to completely transform the animal kingdom. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Wow. So in this final verse, you see characteristics of not a spiritual kingdom, but a physical kingdom. You have a reference to a mountain. You have a reference to the earth itself. And somehow during this era, get this, every person across the globe will have a knowledge of the Lord. When did that happen? When did that happen? Ezekiel 2 speaks of the kingdom in both chapters 34 and 37. Speaking of a future time when Yahweh will cause his people to return to the promised land and to their God, here's what Ezekiel writes in chapter 34. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest and I will judge between one sheep and another. So God's gonna do this great, this great recovering of the people of Israel to bring them back to the land. And you say, oh, okay, well, in 1948, that's what happened, right? Right, 1948, the reestablishment of the nation of Israel, God's bringing his people back, no. What, what we see in Israel today is not believing Israel, not in the least, this is, not, this is not a spiritual kingdom in Israel today. It's a very much a secular nation. And besides that, look at the next two verses. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. Wow, what does that mean? And he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, don't forget that Ezekiel's prophecy comes more than 300 years after King David passed away, right? So who's he referring to when it says, my servant? It's not actually David. David's dead. Who is this person? Has there been a Davidic king in Israel since 1948? Not even close. So this hasn't taken place in the past, and it's not happening now. And it cannot, again, be spiritualized away because you see terms here that are earthly. The mountains of Israel streams, inhabited places. This cannot be anything but a future earthly kingdom. Your king is coming to rule the earth. Now, three chapters later, in chapter 37, Ezekiel repeats some of the same themes, but then he adds this component as well. He says, I will make them one nation in the land, again, on the mountains of Israel, geographical, physical, earthly location, and one king will be king for all of them. They, listen to this. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols. Israel's going to be clean, cleansed of idol worship. And I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned. Look at that statement. And I will cleanse them. I will cleanse them. 
They will be my people and I will be their God. What does that sound like? That sounds like a massive outpouring of salvation in the land of Israel where God will forgive their sins. Why? Because they've looked upon their Messiah, the one that they've pierced and they have mourned and they have trusted in him and they have repented of their sins. This, this is what Paul talks about in Romans 11, this idea that all Israel will be saved, this great outpouring of salvation. And then it goes on. My servant David, again, David. My servant David will be king over them and they all have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They'll be a, an obedient people finally in this future kingdom. So then is it any wonder when you turn over to the New Testament and you open up Matthew 1, the first words you read are these. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. Connection made. And is it any wonder that when the Magi follow the star, what's their question? Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? That's, they, they even knew it in the East that this was a king. Is it any wonder in the first chapter of Luke's gospel when the angel Gabriel is sent by God to Nazareth to appear to Mary? What does, he say? What does the angel say to Mary? You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Yeshua, right, Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, how long? Forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Imagine being Mary and hearing those words. And do you think Mary made that connection with the Old Testament? Yeah, absolutely. She understood what was happening here, I'm sure of it. So this is, this is what King, so David, the Davidic covenant, really is the key to understanding this as we come into the New Testament. Now, let's talk more about this future kingdom because this is where it gets exciting. What are some of the characteristics of this, I believe, this coming earthly Davidic kingdom? Well, we can summarize them from the prophets. Politically, the reign of Christ is gonna be worldwide. Think about this. There will be one king for the whole world, a perfectly righteous and just king. A, a, a world filled with peace. We talked about it last week about how, how with the judgment of the nations, God will only send sheep into the millennial kingdom, right? The goats will be cast into the fire. So only believers will come into this millennial kingdom and they will spread out across the earth and Jesus himself will be king over all the earth. So there's peace and there's blessedness and there's righteousness and there's justice through his perfect rule. Anybody want to be a part of that? I mean, does that not get you excited that that's what the future looks like? As we've seen, his throne will be established in the literal city of Jerusalem. Again, it has to be because that's where David's throne is located. His government based in Israel will be theocratic in nature, meaning he will be governor, he will be, he will be king, he will be administrator, and he will be judge. He will do all of those things. And because God himself is reigning from Jerusalem, this is amazing, it, Considering our current situation, think about it. Israel will become the center point of the world. Today, it's like the most hated nation on the earth. But someday, when the king arrives, it will be the center of the world's attention. This is what Isaiah writes in chapter 2 of his prophecy. In the last days, he says, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and raised above the hills. Everybody will look to it. All the nations, look at that, will stream to it. Wait, even Arab nations? Yes. Yes, all nations will stream to it. 
And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Wow. Why? For the law will go forth from Zion. And the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. Look at the peace. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. So once again, we have references to physical things, right? Mountains and hills and swords and spears. And obviously nothing like this has happened in the past. How could it be anything else but Jesus ruling on the earth? Again, knowing how much hatred the nations have for Israel, why would they stream there? Why would they go to Jerusalem of all places to get teaching and to get wisdom? Only if God himself were reigning from there. That's the only reason. Your king is coming to rule on the earth and we'll be a part of it. Spiritually, the blessings of the millennium will be felt across the entire earth. Holiness and worship an attitude of joy and praise will abound. One of the great benefits of the millennial rule will be a healing of the land of Israel. No longer will be Israel be a dry place, a place of desolation. The prophets say that water is going to break forth in the deserts and water is going to break, break forth in the wilderness. The harvest of crops will be, will be plentiful and prosperous. Ezekiel even talks about the Dead Sea being made fresh once again. Imagine that. If you've been to Israel, you know what I'm talking about. That's the deadest place there is that it'll be fresh, that marine life will return to the Dead Sea. As we read earlier, we're told that because of the presence of the Lord, there's this drastic change that comes over the entire earth. The animal kingdom is affected. Even human life is effective. For those who are ushered into the millennial period in their human bodies, the Bible says lifespans will be greatly expanded, just like in the days of old. We're told that disease will be reduced, that disabilities will be healed in this time. Isaiah says that every person will have his own home and his own vineyard. There'll be no more, no more hunger, no more homelessness. All of mankind's labor gets redeemed. It becomes productive once again. And then maybe one of the most interesting things that we tend to focus on, the reconstruction of a new temple in Jerusalem. It'll serve as the worship center for the entire world. Ezekiel goes to great lengths in this regard. If you really want to know about the millennial temple, read Ezekiel. He, he starts in chapter 37. He, you guys have heard the vision of the, the valley of dry bones, right? Where he talks about Israel being this, this valley of skeletons, right? Just dry bones, but how God is going to breathe life back into them and they're going to be resurrected to life. Well, right in that same chapter, this is what Ezekiel writes. He says, I will place them, meaning the house of Israel, and multiply them and will set my sanctuary the temple, my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Now that can't be any past temple. Okay? We can be sure of that because in chapters 40 to 46, Ezekiel gives us this detailed description of the temple. Get this, seven full chapters of Ezekiel all about this temple structure. You think God, God meant for us to know about this? Seven full chapters. Chapters 40 to 42, he talks about its massive dimensions. It is going to be bigger than anything that you can imagine. Way bigger than even Herod's temple. 
in the days of Christ. If you've been to Jerusalem, you know how big that Temple Mount is, right? Much, much bigger, according to Ezekiel. Chapter 43, he talks about how the glory of God is going to come back into that millennial temple. And it makes sense because if, if Jesus... Jesus, the God-man, comes in his glory and goes up into his temple. The glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory, will return to that sanctuary, to that structure. And then in something sort of mysterious, in chapters 44 to 46, Ezekiel talks about a type of sacrificial system being resumed. Now, we won't need sacrifices for sin, and so most scholars look at that and think it's some type of memorial to the sacrifice that Christ made for us. So there's mystery to that for sure. But Ezekiel gives us so much detail. Jeremiah, too, gets involved in millennial prophecy. In chapter 23, he famously writes this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Where? In the land, on earth. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. How many, how many kings are called the Lord our righteousness? Not a lot. Jeremiah also gives us an inkling into the sort of the timing of this era. He talks about the tribulation period as Revelation does. Here's what comes next. He says, now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. Let me stop there for just a second. Those who hold to an all-millennial position in, in interpreting these passages, do not believe that Israel has any place in the end times, that God has, has discarded them. And it's just the church now. There is no ethnic Israel. There is no program for Israel in the end times. But you've seen over and over again, who are these prophecies directed to? To Israel, to Judah. You would have to make the case that those words mean nothing to say they're not directed to Israel and Judah. But you see it over and over again. Concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread. There is no peace. Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress. This is the great tribulation. Jeremiah talks about it long before it takes place. This is what Jesus will later describe in Matthew 24 when he says this. He says, then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. It's the time of Jacob's distress. Jeremiah continues, it shall come about on this day, declares the Lord of hosts, making sure I'm right, that I will break the yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. Here's the thing, Israel has suffered for millennia under the, the, the yoke of Gentile rule, haven't they? And so God promises to break that off. Never again will they become slaves. But that they shall serve the Lord their God, and there it is again, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. God is going to raise up a Davidic king for them. And then Jeremiah says, this is the result, and I love this. He says, thus says the Lord, yet again there will be heard in this place the voice of joy and the voice of gladness. And look at this language that we see in the New Testament. The voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. The voice of those who say, give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Wow. It's a lot, huh? I mean, and look, this is just a, a small selection. It is all over the Old Testament prophets. Now, I've just talked about the major prophets. There are minor prophets as well. I won't bore you with Amos and Hosea and Micah, but there's tons in there as well. I will go to Zechariah. 
Because of all the minor prophets, Zechariah speaks the most about this. He's very prolific when it comes to uh, end times prophecy. I could spend another two hours just in Zechariah, just reading scripture. Adam would like that, but I'm not going to do that. Okay? Zechariah 1. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, my temple, declares the Lord of hosts. And a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities will again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Important language there. Israel comes front and center once again in God's plan. And God says, I chose Israel once, I will choose them again. And I will choose to comfort them in this time. Later in chapter 8, we read about the safety and security that he will bring to his people. Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. That's what the world's going to think. That God in the flesh has come back and he's ruling from Jerusalem. That is the city of truth. You want truth? That's where you go. And the mountain of the Lord will be called the holy mountain. You want holiness? Go walk on that mountain. Old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, carefree. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in the streets. And they will live in the midst of Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. That doesn't happen much in Jerusalem these days. It's a chaotic city. It's a dangerous place. Hmm. And then we see how beloved the Jews in all the corners of the earth are become. This is really an amazing statement. How beloved the Jews will become as a people to the Gentile nations. Many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, get this, in those days, 10 men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. Wow, again, Imagine that happening. It, based on what you know today, imagine all the anti-Semitism, the anti-Israel, anti-Zionist movements. Imagine that. Then we come to Zechariah 9, almost done. And this is a very famous passage. Zechariah 9 is everybody's favorite choice for Palm Sunday, right? But I want you to listen to it with an eschatological ear now. Here it is. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. That sounds familiar. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Okay, good. There we, there's our first advent of Christ, right? Jesus is final, uh, entering into Jerusalem on a donkey. But listen to what comes next. And the bow of war will be cut off. Did that happen 2,000 years ago? No. And he will speak peace to the nations... His dominion as a king will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That didn't happen when he came on that donkey. So similar to Isaiah 9, we have a dual fulfillment. One is in the near future, right? Jesus riding humbly in on the donkey and the other a far away fulfillment at the end of days when there will be peace in the land. Well, he is going to rule to the ends of the earth. And it's all packaged together in this very tight prophecy that we read every Palm Sunday and go, oh, that's interesting. No, it's much bigger than that. Your king is coming to rule the earth. Now, you've been patient. I've probably worn you out, but I have to do one more because Zechariah 14, 
describes almost the entire picture of the, uh, picture of the end days sort of compressed into about eight verses. So I want to read these to you. This is so interesting. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. Who's going to gather the nations? God. God himself gathers the nations in the end to do battle against Jerusalem. This is the final battle spoken of in Revelation 19, right? The end of the great tribulation. The nations are going to gather an army and they're going to invade Israel. Get this, to make war against God himself. Can you imagine? The chutzpah, right? But look, they will, they'll have some success and the city will be captured. The house is plundered, the women ravished and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then, here's the answer, Revelation 19, right? We see the rider on the white horse. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Unless you, unless you believe that this is only a spiritual thing and not physical, listen to verse four. This is key. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. That's, that's hard to spiritualize that. Glorified feet and on a mountain that you can go visit today. We'll be there in November. We'll stand on that Mount of Olives and we'll look down on the, onto the Temple Mount and you will see this perspective. By the way, that's the same place from which Jesus ascended to 2,000 years ago. Right? We see it in Acts chapter 1. Remember, two angels appear to the disciples. They're watching Jesus disappear. And they say, and what do the angels say? Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? What are you doing? <laughs> Get going. you got things to do, right? Actually, that's my commentary. The angels say, this Jesus who had been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Connections, connections. And here in Zechariah 14, we see that the prophecy will happen. Physical glorified feet standing on a physical Mount of Olives. And it goes on, the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle. The presence of this glorified God, is this blazing glory, this roaring lion is gonna split the mountain. I know, it's, it's wild to think about, but the, imagine the power the power, the physical power of a divine being stepping onto a mountain. Uh, it's just amazing, right? All man of all will be split in its middle. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Ah, who are the holy ones? Ta-da! It's us. Yeah. Returning with Christ. Oh, man. Now, that's, not a, that's only if this generation doesn't get raptured, right? Because that's, that's a whole different thing. But all the saints are going to come back with the Lord, right? That's us, glorified believers. Amazing. In that day, there'll be no light. Won't need to be because Christ will be present on the earth, right? The luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. Your king is coming to rule the earth. Now, you might be asking yourself, and you should ask this question. It's a good question. It, it, for those folks who, again, lovely brothers and sisters who hold to an amillennial position on this, how do they interpret these passages? How do they do it? Well, they have to prove, and again, not an attack. Love, love these guys. This is not an essential of the faith. They have to prove that these things have already happened in the past. That's one argument. Well, 
we'll figure out how to put these somewhere in the past. That's hard to do, but some of them try to do that. Or more likely, they will have to spiritualize these passages by saying, well, I know it sounds literal, but they really reflect spiritual realities in the heavenly places. Or they'll say, I know it sounds temporal, but it's something that will only be experienced in the new heaven, in the new earth, and we can't fully understand that yet. But the challenge that they have, and this is why I cannot get there, again, is because they remove Israel from the entire picture. They, they just say Israel, Israel's been cast aside. They have no place in God's future plan. And I read these passages and I say, then how is God a, how is God, a God of his word? And so I, cannot, I, I just cannot abide by that interpretive grid. I remain open to it because, again, many smart men and women, people that I love, they will, they will posture this. I cannot get behind that interpretive grid. I think it's just too spiritual. It's, it, it's, it's, not a, it's not the plainest reading of Scripture that I see. And we can, again, if you want to buy me coffee, we can talk some more about that. If you, want to, if you want to take the amillennial position, which, by the way, is so trendy today, I mean, all the, the new Calvinists and all these folks, really, they want to be super reformed. They want to be amillennial. It's very trendy. Now, folks are even moving towards postmillennialism, which is really strange. Okay, so we're just going to stay where we're at for now. We're, again, open to things, but our elder team is committed to premillennialism because we think it's the clearest reading of Scripture. Okay, was that enough for you? I want to finish with a New Testament reference now because something comes after the millennial came. That is going to be an amazing thousand years that we get to participate in. What comes next? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, of all places, Paul actually talks about it. After the millennial period, he says this. He says, Christ must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. Remember I said that his reign on earth is being contested? At some point, he's going to have to put all of his enemies under his feet. And the text goes on. And the last enemy that will be abolished is what? Is death. Hallelujah, right? And Paul says, and then comes the end, he writes, when Christ hands over the kingdom to his father. In submission to his father, just as he was on the earth, he hands over the king, kingdom to his father. And what a, what a picture that is. First of all, this millennial reign where Christ rules as king on the earth and us with him, and then this final day when all things are summed up forever, when death is finally done away with. Finally done away with, and we enter into this eternal state of glory. Friends, these are things to think about at Christmas time. I know we love the manger. I get it. It's wonderful. That part of the story is fantastic. But the picture is so large. That is what we've been trying to draw over the last four weeks. The picture of Christmas is much, much larger. All the developments happening in the world right now, because look, we're all looking at the news right now. We're all reading social media. We're, we're like, the world has gone crazy. All the things happening in our world today are just steps to this glorious end. They will happen. They have to happen. And they're steps to God's decisive victory. It's just a matter of time. Because God's promises are unfailing. He will bring all of this to pass. So let's make sure we remember this at Christmas time. God is going to bring this to pass. So joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Father, what a glorious plan you have for us, for your kingdom 
God, just encourages us, encourage us today, encourage us this Christmas season as we think about you coming in the fullness of time and being born of a virgin and celebrating that amazing moment that really was such a beginning point for all that we talked about today, Lord. But it's so big, Lord. Help us to be overwhelmed and in awe of how good you are, how sovereign you are, and to be just excited about the plan that you have for us in the future. And Lord, as we sing Joy to the World in just a moment, may we sort of recalibrate our ears. Even as we hear, we hear the band do an instrumental version of it, Lord, help us to recalibrate our ears, to hear now with eschatological ears, and to praise you for what you're going to do in the future. Thank you for our time this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.